Welcome to Grace and Glory Audio, featuring Pastor P.G. Matthew. Today, Pastor Matthew continues in the Bible series in the book of 1 John with this message entitled, The Test of Obedience, preached February the 18th, 2001. 1 John 2, 3 through 6. We know, which means we know experientially. We know by observation, the word is ginosko, we know experientially that we have come to know him. And that is in the perfect tense, which means that we have come to know him and continue to know him. Or we could say we know that we have fellowship with God. We know that we are friends of God. We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. But notice uh, the New International Version does not translate a couple of words uh, you find in the Greek text. And it is a, a failure on the part of the translators because the Greek text says And by this, we know him, that we have come to know him. By this, and that expression appears several times in this epistle, by this, which means by this specific practical test, by this. So if you want to read it correctly, by this, we know that we have come to know him. And what is this by this? If, if we obey his commands. The man who says I know him, but does not do what he commands, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But if anyone obeys his word... God's love is truly made complete in him. In other words, he is an authentic Christian. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must, is obligated, must walk exactly as Jesus walked. Now, we are here dealing with assurance of salvation based on a moral test, the test of obedience. And you must apply this test as I preach. You must apply this test to your life and see whether you are an authentic Christian or a mere professor And if you examine it in the light of what I preach, you will come to one of these three conclusions. And one, that you are an authentic Christian. You love God because you keep his commandments. Two, you are a backslidden Christian. Three, you are an unbeliever. You are a liar. You are without God. Now, if your conclusion is that you are 
an authentic Christian, then what do you do? You praise God and obey him with greater commitment. In a greater way, you obey him. If you find yourself as a backslidden Christian, you must repent and begin to obey him. And if you find yourself outside the kingdom of God, the counsel to you is to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. How do we know that we are truly children of God? That we are truly born of God. That at death we will be with Christ. How do we know that we have eternal life? How do we know that we have fellowship with the Father and the Son? How do we know that we are on our way to heaven right now and not to hell? St. Paul said, I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him for that day. He also said, now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day as assurance of salvation, isn't it? St. Paul also said, for I am convinced and in a state of conviction. Pepe's mind. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So the question is, how can we have this kind of assurance of salvation. That we are not self-deluded into thinking that we are people of God. The Roman Catholic Church officially denies that a believer can have assurance of salvation. In the Council of Trent, this is what they agreed upon. No one can know with a certainty of faith, which cannot be subject to error, that he has obtained the grace of God. No one can know that he has obtained the grace of God. And not only that, the Council of Trent says, which took place in the 16th century, if anyone saith that a man who is born again and justified, is bound of faith to believe that he is assuredly in the number of the predestinate. Let him be what? Anathema. In other words, if you maintain that you are assured of your salvation, Council of Trent pronounces a curse on you. In other words, the normal Christian life for the Roman Catholic Church is not to have any assurance of your salvation. The Reformers had a different view. 
John Calvin taught that assurance of salvation is not only possible, but belongs to the essence of faith and is not something additional to faith. In his institutes, Calvin writes, no man is a believer, I say, except him who leaning upon the assurance of his salvation confidently triumphs over the devil and death. That's an amazing statement, isn't it? Let me say it again. No man, says John Calvin, no man is a believer. I say, except him who? Leaning upon the assurance of his salvation, because that is the essence of faith, confidently triumphs over the devil and death. You see, at the moment of death, you are assured of your salvation, so you overcome it. Death and the devil are overcome by this great assurance that I am a child of God, that I am truly saved. For Calvin, assurance was an essential component of salvation. You know that one of the purposes of this first epistle of John is to teach us this assurance of salvation. As we read in chapter 5 and verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. The heretics of John's day claimed knowledge of God. They claimed fellowship with God. They claimed assurance of salvation. But it was a false claim. The apostle John gives us some tests to prove whether one's claim is true or false. And let me tell you, much of modern preaching promotes a Christianity that is cut off from ethical obedience to Jesus Christ. And you have heard such caricature of Christianity that says you can receive Jesus into your life, and he is there in your life, but on, not on the throne. Who is on the throne? You are on the throne. You are running the life, but Jesus Christ is somewhere there in the circle of your life. Now, as you go on, it may be that one day you will decide to get out of the chair, the throne, and have Jesus come over there. But whether you make him Lord or not, you are on your way to heaven. I said much of modern preaching promotes antinomian Christianity that will fail this moral test that St. John gives us. So, let's look at the test. It is a moral test. 
It is a test of obedience to our God. And by this we know, meaning experientially, by this we know we have come to know him. And by this means, whoever keeps his commandments, whoever continues to keep his commandments, whoever daily keeps his commandments, and we know his commandments are not burdensome. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Anybody can make a claim. Anybody can profess and confess Christ. Anybody can say, Lord, Lord. Anybody can say, I'm a Christian. And that's what you read in 1 John chapter 2, 4. He who says. Or 1 John chapter 1, verse 6 and 8 and 10. It says, if we claim, if we claim, if we claim, if we say, if we profess. Every claim of being a Christian must be tested by an objective test that the apostle gives us. It is not a subjective test that I say that I'm a Christian. It is an objective test. It is a moral test. It is a test regarding one's conduct, one's behavior. Does the claimant's life conform to the moral code of the Holy Scriptures. By this we know, in by this moral test, we know we have come to know him. Remember the Gnostics claimed knowledge of God. And St. John, of course, is opposing the Gnostics and their teachings. Gnostics were antinomian intellectualists. For them, sinning was no barrier to fellowship with God. So the test is what? Whether the professing Christian continually obey the commandments of God. A Christian who does not obey the will of God, revealed in the word of God, St. John the Apostle says such a person is a liar. Ask yourself whether you are a liar. There is no truth in him, he says. In other words, there is no Christ in him. There is no Holy Spirit in him. Such a person is without God. Such a person is without hope. Such a person is not in the kingdom of God. Such a person is not born from above. He has no life of God in the soul of man. He is a liar. His father is the devil. John 8, 44. He is like his father, therefore he lies. God is truth, so a child of God is like God, therefore he speaks truth and performs truth. Or turn to chapter 4 of 1 John and verse 20, there is this statement, if anyone says, notice that phrase, if anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, that is in violation to God's commandment, he is what? 
Eliah. And St. Paul says this in Titus 1 and verse 16. Let me read to you. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. And now St. Paul describes such people. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. The prophet Hosea in chapter 4 and verse 1 complains that there is no knowledge of God in the land. And why did he say that? He gives reason because there is lying and murder and stealing and adultery and so on going on in the land. You cannot have knowledge of God and lying and adultery and murder and stealing at the same time. Knowledge of God has moral consequences. If your God is the devil, you live like the devil. If your God is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we live in conformity with the life of Christ. By this we know that we have come to know him. Second, I want to speak about knowledge of God, knowing God. Knowledge of God is not knowing about him. There is a vast difference between knowing theology and knowing God. There are many theologians who know much about God but do not know the triune God. There are many pastors who know much about the triune God, but do not know the true God. Knowing God is knowing a person. It is a personal relationship. It is a vital relationship. It is an intimate relationship. It is a growing relationship. It is a loving relationship. It is the most satisfying relationship. It is enjoying eternal life, a life that is out of this world. It is conversing with God and God speaking to us. So St. John in chapter 17 and, and verse 3, he tells us this is eternal life, that they may know thee, not about, not studying theology, that they may know thee, the only true God. And how can you know him, the only true God? It is through Jesus Christ. Therefore, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Because Jesus Christ is the one who reveals the Father to us. And no one comes to the Father except through him. Before we can talk about knowing God, we must consider the biblical anthropology. In other words, what does the Bible say about man? What does the Bible say about the condition of man? Man is a fallen creature. That's what the book says. He's an enemy of God in his mind. 
He is a sinner, he is ungodly, he is wicked, he hates God and his law. His nature is sinful and he can only sin. He is dead in trespasses and sins. He is like a worm in a sewer. He is very active but only in evil. He is wicked in his mind and in his will and in his affections. He suppresses truth and exchanges truth for a lie. He hates light but loves darkness. He was created as a creature of light. Now he loves darkness. He became a nocturnal being. It is impossible for him to know God truly or love God. That's the truth. Then how can we speak about man, such man, knowing God? Therefore, God must raise the sinner from the dead. He must regenerate him. He must first give him a new heart, removing the heart of stone. He must give him a new nature. He must write the law of God in his heart, which is called divine nature. And you read Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, that speaks about this. Prior, spiritual, supernatural, miraculous, divine work of regenerating us and giving us a new nature. Therefore, now I look upon God and his law with great delight because this new nature is given to me. And so he will know God, then he will love God. It says they all will know me. And he will know God, and he will love God, and he will delight in the law of God with his mind and will. If one is born of God, then he is alive toward God, he knows God, he loves God, he delights to do the will of God. Such a person knows God not just knowing about God. And so the third thing we are told is the moral test of keeping his commandments. Let me say this. When we speak about the moral test of keeping his commandments, we should not say that we are reading here about perfection. Nobody keeps the commandments of God at any time perfectly. However, our basic direction is changed. We love God, we obey God, and as time goes on, we grow in grace and in the knowledge of God, and we obey his word with a greater and greater degree of perfection. So a person who is raised from the dead keeps God's commandments because with his new life, he delights in God's law, which is God's law, God's commandments, God's word. What is it? It is holy, it is good, it is spiritual, it is the transcript and the expression of divine nature. And so he gave us divine nature, and therefore now, automatically, I love the expression of divine nature in the holy word and delights in knowing and doing it. God's children manifest God's character and therefore necessarily, necessarily delights in and does the will of God expressed in the moral code of the Holy Scriptures. Now we can read a number of scriptures, but let me read 
Ephesians chapter 2. And you know that we are dead in trespasses and sins, and God made us alive and all that. And then we are told the purpose of this great salvation. And in verse 10, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do away with good works, to get rid of the commandments. We are under grace, not under the law and all that type of stupid dichotomy. Oh, no. We are created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God has foreordained that we should walk in them. If anyone says, I'm a Christian and and therefore I am free to violate and despise and denigrate the law of God. He is a fool. He is a liar. He is a cheat. He is self-deluded. Matthew chapter 28, the Great Commission, go into all the world, make disciples, baptize people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them now the word, the same word, tereo, to keep, to obey, to observe all that I have commanded you. You cannot be a disciple and fail to obey what God has commanded us in his holy scriptures. Or look at the apostolic calling of St. Paul. Why did God call him? Romans chapter 1 verse 5. Through him and for his name's sake we received grace and apostleship to call people from among the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from the faith. If sin is disobedience to God and transgression of his law, salvation results in our loving the law of God and doing the law of God. John 14 verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Matthew 7, 17 says a good tree produces good fruit. You see, it is by a miracle that trees like us, God made us good trees by giving us divine nature, then good trees automatically produces good fruits. And then Jesus said, good trees cannot bear bad fruit. Or Turn with me to the book of Deuteronomy. It is the fifth book in our Holy Scriptures. Listen to it in chapter 10. Let me read it to you what God, God's will for our life is all about. Deuteronomy 10, beginning with verse 12. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord God ask of you? Ask of the people of God, ask of people who have been redeemed from the slavery of Satan. What does he ask of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord with your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. Let me tell you, it is utterly impossible to know God and not love God and keep his commandments. Let me say one more time that obedience to his commandments is not the condition of your knowing God, but the evidence that you do know God. But 
Not only that we know him, St. John tells us something more. Let's turn to chapter 2 of St. John's epistle, first epistle, and verse 6. It says this, whoever claims to dwell in him. It is not only knowing him, but here we are told about something else, dwelling in him, living in him. We not only know him, we are in him, we live in him. God is our home. In him we live and move and have our being. We live in him and he in us. What is this? Oh, this is wonderful. This is speaking about our vital, inseparable union with God in Jesus Christ. Turn to chapter 3 of 1 John and verse 24. There is a definition given there about this abiding in him, living in him. Those who obey his commands live in him. Now, isn't that wonderful? If you are obedient to his commands, you can draw this conclusion. You know him, but more than that, what is it? You live in God. You dwell in God. You are in God. I mean, that's a lot of security, isn't it? And so it says, those who obey his commands live in him, and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit that God has given us. Or turn to the Gospel of John, which I believe he wrote first. And these Ephesians Christians did have them. And 15th chapter of John speaks about this vital union. And read chapter uh, 15, verse 1 through 10, but let me read at least from 5. Uh, I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. And verse 10, if you obey my commands, you will remain in my love just as I have obeyed my father's commands and remain in his love. Without me, you can do nothing. What is the evidence of your vital union with the vine, Jesus Christ? What is the evidence? Tell me. Fruitlessness? No. If you are vitally united to Jesus Christ by saving faith, then there is fruit, more fruit, much fruit for the glory of God the Father. What is fruit? It is obedience to God's commandments. That's what it is. Fruit, that is obedience, is the evidence that the branch is vitally united to the vine, Jesus Christ, our life. No fruit means no union. Very simple deduction. And such branches are not vitally united and savingly united to Jesus Christ. They may make professions, but they will be destroyed, we are told. The branch that does not bear fruit will be destroyed. And you turn to Matthew 7 and verse 21. Many people come and say, Lord, Lord, these were false professors. And they were destroyed. 
the Lord said, depart from me, go to hell, in other words. It's very simple language. Number five. If those who profess that we know him and we dwell in him, <laughs> we are told the test again is what? You must, you are obligated. You must necessarily walk, that is live. Behave yourself, conduct yourself, kathos, exactly as Jesus lived in history. You see, how to live to please God, nobody knew. Until God demonstrated that through his son, Jesus Christ, in this world. Now, you remember, forgive us, God, forgive you. We must walk exactly as Jesus walked. He modeled for us how to live in this world for the glory of God. In the midst of temptation and sin and evil and trouble, he modeled for us how to live. We are told in the Bible, Enoch walked with God, Noah walked with God, Abraham was asked to walk before me and be thou perfect. St. Paul tells us, walk in faith, walk in the spirit, walk in love, walk in wisdom, walk in light, walk daily, balanced progression in this journey toward the celestial city of God. You must walk exactly as Jesus walked. Now you ask the question, how did he walk? Remember in this world of temptation, Jesus was tempted, we are told, and what did he say? It is written, I am subject to the word of God. Therefore, I will not do what the devil is asking me to do. He said, not my will, but thine be it done. Or turn to John chapter 8 and verse 29, and there we read the key to his life which was to glorify God, his Father, and enjoy him forever. John 8, verse 29 says, The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone. For I always do what pleases him. Notice that. I always do what pleases him because he always did what God revealed in the word of God, how we should live. And so we are told in many places in the scriptures that we must imitate this Jesus Christ. Turn to John 13 and verse 15. Listen what Jesus himself said, John 13, 15. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Jesus Christ said in John 8 and verse 12, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Or as St. Peter in First Peter chapter 2. Let's listen to St. Peter. And what does he say? First Peter 2 and verse 21. To this end you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. And I can give you many scriptures, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 and 3. 
But let's turn to Romans chapter 15, and let me read the first three verses. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not please ourselves. Each of us should please his neighbor for his good to build him up. And now we are given why we should do so. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. In other words, Jesus Christ pleased his God. So you see the test. You must apply the test if you profess and claim that I know him, I dwell in him, I am in vital union with God, I am in the sphere of the kingdom of God, then you must apply the test to whether I keep his commandments, whether I walk exactly as Jesus walked in this world in history 2,000 years ago. Number six, let's look at the basis of this assurance. Some people think the basis of this assurance is mysticism, phenomena, some direct experience with God, being caught up into the third heaven and seeing and hearing wonderful things. Visions and thrills touched by an angel, sensations, ball of fire, miracles speaking in tongues, demons cast out, amazing answers to prayers. Are these the basis of your assurance? This John, the great mystic, doesn't give us some test that has to do with some kind of mystical experience. He comes down to earth. And what is it that he is saying? Keep his commandments in the word, in exact imitation of Jesus. Not some heavenly experience, but down to earth duties that we want to get away from. Isn't that interesting? We are told, read it, that this person in whom the love of God is filled to overflowing is the person who does the ordinary duties that God has revealed himself in his law. Dr. John Stott to give us an example that a couple came to him apparently and disclosed this thing. A couple, not married, of course, didn't have the benefit of marriage or anything, but they were living together. They prayed about it. And they got a little feeling that it is what? All right. The only problem is the book says it is not all right. If you are trying to circumvent the book, you will get all kinds of funny sensations. It is called demon activity. Let me tell you something. This wonderful thing, this test is a moral test. It's a, it is not some kind of transport into the heavenlies and, and fireballs and lights and thundering bells and uh, visions and raptures and swinging on the chandeliers. What is the evidence that the love of God is poured into you and it is overflowing in your life? Let me tell you. Forgive, 
as God has forgiven you. If you do not provide for your family, you are worse than an unbeliever. Provide for your family by getting up in the morning six days and go to work and come home and take care of your family. That is sweat. But spirituality is attached to sweat. Love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Not according to your standard, the way God, Christ, loved the church. And if you are a wife, submit and respect your husband whom God has placed over you. Your children honor and obey your parents in everything. And such a person is truly born of God. Such a person knows God. Such a person dwells in God. Such a person is filled to overflowing with God's love. Pray without ceasing. Study the word of God. Don't neglect the gathering together of the saints as the habit of some is. See, some people come to church, if I make that person a leader, if you don't make me a leader, you see, they go around from church to church, you know, can I, can I become a leader? <laughs> but the book says, do not neglect the gathering together of the saints. Love your brothers by laying down your life. That's what Jesus Christ did even though messianically we cannot do that way. It says love not the world. It says we must share the gospel in the world. We are the light of the world and the salt of the earth. If you are vitally united with Jesus Christ, there will be obedience, more obedience, and what? Much obedience. We will not seek some kind of transcendent rapturous experiences. We will look at the book and do what the book says because it is the transcript of divine nature. And if God has given you divine nature, you love his transcript, which is the book of God's word. Such a person has great assurance of salvation. You go home and read John 14, 21, 23, and 24. It says, the Father and the Son will come to you and make their abode with you. Tell me, is that assurance? <laughs> if you love me, you will keep my commandments and uh, the Father and the Son will come into you. This is God manifesting himself to your soul and the soul is rapturous. Assured. That I am a child of God. The spirit of God witnesses to my spirit. I am a child of God. If children of God we are heirs of God. Joined heirs with Christ. And no wonder he said. I know whom I have believed. And I am persuaded that he is able to keep me. For that day. So we know we are saved because we are born of God. We have life of God. We know God. We love God because we have divine nature that delights in God's character expressed in his laws. Finally, you know why? We are truly Christians because we delight in knowing and doing the ordinary duties God has given in his book. This daily obedience is not the condition of my salvation, but simply the evidence of my eternal salvation. 
I want to ask you uh, to follow the directive of St. Peter. Make your calling and election sure. To be deluded in this is a serious delusion in the whole of life. And they came to him and said, Lord, Lord. And then they spoke about, not about the obedience of ordinary duties. They said what? We perform miracles, we cast out demons, and we prophesied. We are all doing. Get out of my presence, you evildoers. So you see the supreme importance of this moral test that is given. Not charismatic, but simple obedience to God's transcript of his nature, which is his law. God enabled you to know him. Therefore, we obey. No, first. Obey, second. And this obedience brings us to greater knowledge of God. My son and I will come and make my abode with you. Which in turn results in greater obedience to God. Which results in greater knowledge of God. And we grow in grace and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you help us to apply this test to ourselves. And if we find ourselves to be disobedient, maybe we are backslidden, help us to repent. And maybe we are not children of God. If this is so, help us to cry out to you that we may be saved. For we pray this in Christ's name, amen.